0: About South fans. We are so excited to be with you. Today marks the first half of our first season. So we are halfway through the first fall season and we couldn't be happier with the way everything has worked out. And that's in large part to those of you who have reached out to me or Kelly or to us on the website to let us know that you're out there listening. Listeners, from the UK, listeners from Canada, from Minnesota, from all over the South, who have sent us emails and text messages and Facebook comments and Instagram hashtags. It's truly been amazing to hear your thoughts, and we just want more of it. Just send us more. More ideas, more things, more everything. This week, we traveled up to North Carolina, one, to see my family. I traveled to North Carolina to see my family. Kelly Vines did not come although she would be welcome, and also to talk to Scott Romine. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and the author of two major books in Southern Studies, the first being The Narrative Forms of Southern Community that came out in 1999 from LSU Press, and the second, The Real South, Southern Narrative in the Age of Cultural Reproduction, which came out in 2008 and continues to be a core text in Southern Studies. Scott sat down to talk to us about Moon pies, Coca Cola, grits, pretty much anything that I could throw at him. And also, most importantly, something we've come back to time and time again on the podcast so far. What do we mean when we talk about the real South? So, without further ado, let's wrap up this first half of the first fall season and listen to Scott Romine.
1: We are several weeks into the About South podcast. We have talked about the Hollywood of the South idea. We have gone on a search for the blue crayfish. We have talked about being ugly. And I don't know that we're any closer to one of the core questions of this podcast, which is, what is the South? And right behind that core question, are we any closer to answering, is it real? So I'm very excited to have you here today who quite literally wrote the book, The Real South, maybe help me answer some of these questions for our audience. I'll try. So to begin, we'll just jump in the deep end. Scott, what is the South?
2: Well, it's a good question and an endlessly complicated one. Um, I guess my best answer to that question would be that the South is an intersection between an idea and a social reality. Um, that we can think about the South from either perspective Uh, the South as an idea that people use to kind of weld and conceptually organize um, a specific region of the United States or uh, as first and foremost a region of the United States about which we can think about which we can talk I tend to take the former um, Perspective myself, I think of the South as primarily an idea an imagined community people did not Collect data and then decide that the South was an excellent way to organize the data um, most people go into their Perception of the data with an idea of the South already in mind and selection bias kicks in um, and people conform um, the data they collect in order to have it match the idea Um, they have going into the collection of data. So um, yeah, my first answer to the question, what is the South, is that it is an idea that people have uh, that tends to exert a distorting effect or can exert a distorting effect on whatever they encounter in their South.
1: Is there an example of something that the idea of the South distorts?
2: Sure, uh, there's lots of examples. First of all, what is the idea of the South? Is the South uh, a backward region of the United States? Is it economic uh, problem number one, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt said in um, 1938? Um, is it a land of boors and rednecks? Is it the epicenter of American racism? I mean, these are all negative ways the South has been coded. Uh, or alternatively, is the South the bastion of tradition in a Uh, modernizing, globalizing nation? Um, Is the South where people take leisure seriously? Is the South where uh, family values predominate? And these are positive ways of encoding the South. And so uh, from the beginning of of the way we think about the South, we tend to characterize it as either positive or negative. Um, And so, depending on which basic orientation one takes toward the South, you begin to select the data that conforms to that that model, that paradigm. And so uh, if I were to think of the South as uh, America's bastion of tradition, then how do I fit the data? How do I understand um, the very palpable and historically evident um, traditions of Southern racism, of race violence? Um, that would tend to get filtered out of that equation. Similarly, if um, the South is understood as primarily a racist portion of the nation, then that filters out a lot of progressive racial thinking that has um, certainly in the past century evolved from distinctively Southern settings.
1: So for example, if I wanted to think about the South as the home of the civil rights movement and that progressive ideology and think about John Lewis and his tradition, I might say, well, look at how far everything has come. It's been Southerners who have done this. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to think about the legacy of deep-seated KKK revival Mm -hmm. that's happened at Stone Mountain in Georgia lately, I may then just focus to all of the past violences and not say, but this is also the city that produced John Lewis.
2: Right. Yeah, either way, you're um, filtering out part of what in the broadest analyses would be an extraordinarily complex and contradictory region. Also, when you're thinking about civil rights as a southern movement, you are making a move that potentially exonerates the rest of the nation. Uh, Malcolm X famously described Mississippi as anywhere in the U.S. south of the Canadian border. Uh, And so to think about the civil rights movement as something that did not affect Newark, New Jersey, and Watts, California. Um, To think of those as outside of the true civil rights movement, which occurred in the South, is to um, deform history. Civil rights was a national movement, not one simply um, and exclusively located in the South.
1: Following up on this, Mm -hmm. the South is an idea that allows us to look retroactively at the data Mm -hmm and always have a bias confirmation, Mm -hmm. or largely have a bias confirmation in our data. Then you also said in the second part of that that the South is also a social reality. Mm -hmm. And this maybe gets a little bit to the second core question of this podcast is, is the South real or is it all production value? Well,
2: we can certainly say that real things happen in an area imaginable as the South. I guess the response to that would be, again, how well does that data conform to the idea of the South that we have? Um, The South, for example, because the idea emerges in the context of slavery uh, and is reinvigorated in the aftermath of the Civil War, during Reconstruction, and during the Civil Rights Movement, has always had a distinctively biracial component to it. Uh, When one thinks about the South, one may think about masters and slaves, about civil rights protesters, Martin Luther King Jr. versus Bull Connor. Um, What about Native Americans in that South? What about uh, Latinos in that South? What about other demographic groups that don't play into that grand narrative or set of historical stereotypes about the South? So that is, again, another danger of thinking about the South too specifically. Uh, Yes, there are realities, immigrant communities from Asia, um, from South America, from Mexico, um, that tend to get elided in the South as it is historically and traditionally and and still often uh, conceived.
1: A previous podcast guest has said that she's from Minnesota. Right. She didn't say she was from Minnesota. I think she actually is from Minnesota, allegedly. She said that when she attempts to get friends from Mm -hmm. Toronto and Minnesota, where she's lived, to come to the South, she says, oh, come, we have moonshine and Mm -hmm. good Southern food and good Mm -hmm. barbecue. And she attempts, and she somewhat had an existential crisis when she was on the podcast, to... She said, well, then, oh, what am I trying to lure people here with? Mm-hmm. All these images, and then I, when they get here, I feel pressured to show them something real, mm-hmm. to take them to something authentically Southern mm-hmm. that they can't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. What is there a danger in that, or what's wrong with that? Or why did her guilt, I realize I'm asking you to speak for someone else's mm-hmm. existential crisis, sure. but where does that desire and then the kind of realizing that maybe that's a problem come from
2: well i mean the things you mentioned um moonshine and food um, these are things you can show in the south that you can't get anywhere else Um, i think there's an interesting history there Uh, you have the civil rights act passed in 1964 the following year southern living magazine begins to be published that is partially coincidental but i think there is a um, also, a the significance there. Um, Michael O'Brien once pointed out that every major social constellation that the South based an identity in, being an agricultural society, or being a slaveholding society, or being a society organized around the idea of white supremacy and segregation, every time those institutions go away, the South ends slavery, or the the nation ends slavery. Slavery is ended in the South. When segregation becomes legally um, outlawed, uh, when an agricultural society gives way to a modern economy, the South still survives. Um, Even though these things that that many people would have said are the core defining institution of the South, um, pass into historical oblivion, the South is still there. And I think something like that may have happened um, in the 1960s and 70s, that uh, Southern Living Magazine and other ways of consuming the South, usually relatively non-controversial ways. Um, No one's really going to fight a civil war over barbecue or over sweet tea or over grits, these distinctively Southern foods. And so literally the South becomes more palatable Um, in such a way that i think again potentially deforms the actual um, material and economic realities of the south if the south means for you sweet tea and moonshine and barbecue and whatever other food is used to represent the south then what is left out of that south
1: right because there's also a history of real unequal labor distribution in food production
2: sure yeah and one of the uh, parts of uh, food discourse that i find fairly disturbing is the way that it tends to um, promote a happy multicultural kind of kumbaya south um, a south where africans bring their okra where europeans bring their food ways and everything kind of combines Uh, happily and we all sit around uh, the Great Southern Table. This is an icon that um, emerges fairly predictably in foodways when people talk about them and when when Southern Living Magazine or Garden and Gun or The Oxford American talk about foodways. And yet food production and consumption is certainly uh, one of those cultural domains in which uh, racial division and inequity could hardly be starker Uh, to think about who produces food, who consumes it, uh, is to think immediately about division rather than uh, cooperation, to think about um, oppression and extraction of labor uh, rather than a kind of happy melting pot effort that everybody pitches into and everybody benefits from. It also
1: strikes me as an incredibly gendered dynamic as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. While there is... I think a lot of households in America have the one-person-cooks, one-person-cleans dynamic. Mm -hmm. I know in many homes, maybe my own growing up, the women are still in the kitchen doing dishes while men are watching the football game. And it was always a bit of a struggle if you happened to be a girl child who wanted to go watch the football game. At what age are you expected to go into the kitchen and help with the dishes.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. I've certainly seen that in my own family where there seems to be an imperative uh, yeah, to go in and help clean up, and the guys lean back from the table and kind of expect their um, plates to be cleared. Um, My daughters will not grow up in that world, but um, I I think that world is is probably still there.
1: And it's not to discount that space. I mean, something Mm -hmm. interesting still happens when the kitchen in particular, it is the women afterwards cleaning up, mm-hmm. talking. I mean, there's something that happens there that I don't want to discount, mm-hmm. but there is an unequal power distribution right. that creates that space of expectation around the production of food.
2: Right, and again, the kitchen is one of those um, symbolically coded spaces. Is the kitchen where women come together and uh, experience a kind of community. Uh, yes, that's part of the equation, but it's also the space where women are expected to perform certain labor. So there's a a complexity there that I think needs to be recognized. And I think oftentimes when we talk about Southern food, we tend to have the romantic uh, kind of happy version rather than the more complicated one.
1: Right. That food just appears on the table as if by magic.
2: And everybody shares it. Right.
1: Right. And those dishes just disappear. Yeah. that's always going to be a Not always, but that is a history of deeply racial and gender dynamics and access.
2: Right, exactly. Uh, And to think about the way um, food is celebrated, uh, the idea of local food, of artisanally produced food products. Uh, If one were to read um, about Southern food today in a variety of venues, that would be the predominant form of labor um, represent it. You see a lot about artisanal uh, modes of production, about locally sourced family farmed foods. Uh, what you don't see is migrant field hands. What you don't see is um, the mass production of food and it's, it's perhaps nice to think that southern food comes from um, these very carefully uh, cultivated, uh, organically grown fields where everything's not. I mean, this is, you know, something. Uh, I guess South America was it Colombia who had Juan Valdon, mm. um, Juan Valdez,
1: Juan Valdez, the Juan coffee. Valdez, yes, the co-
2: it, it's an idea that Juan Valdez goes and picks each coffee bean from the uh, bush or the tree, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not how coffee is harvested, and that's not how the majority of food in the south is produced. The labor presented in food waste discourse and the labor that's actually producing the food are oftentimes very, very different things.
1: But what that, what that reminds me of is even, I'm the youngest grandchild, so I had very old grandparents right. who were tobacco farmers. And they also had what my grandfather called a garden for food, but most people would look at that and say even just the garden was almost a farm. And when I moved to California, people were very interested in that, that they thought, oh, how great, you grew up with eating all that food in the summer that you knew. and. You shelled those peas, and I thought, there was nothing enjoyable. I mean, aside from going to your grandparents' house. But if you have to go out and pick beans and snap beans and canned beans, it's hot. It's not really – no, I don't – I would challenge you to find the 8-year-old who really finds that labor like summer camp.
2: Right. Right. And again, I think the practice is is pretty pervasive. There's a place in uh, Tennessee, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, home of Dollywood, um, that um, advertises, it's a mill that produces, among other things, artisanal grits. And one of the things they advertise on their website is that each bag of grits is hand measured and hand tied um, by a person as would have been done in the 19th century. Well, That's nice, I guess, Um, but really, is that a very interesting job to fill up bags of grits all day and then tie them by hand? Um, What kind of value is that transmitting to the product? Um, I think it transmits the idea that these grits are old-timey, old-fashioned grits, that somehow they symbolically um, embody. Uh, The old ways presumed to be better than the kind of newfangled, modern ways. Uh, But when you think about the actual labor involved, it's doubtlessly a very low-paying and endlessly boring job.
1: Right. It's not the prestige position that I'm filling the bag of grits.
2: Yeah. Uh, You can think about filling bags of grits and tying knots around the bags as artisanal labor, but it stretches the bounds of artisanal
1: What are the dangers then of mistaking these kind of fake things or these, these words around artisanal or authentic, mm-hmm. what is the danger of mistaking those things for the otherwise real conditions, real in quotes, that we might encounter in the region?
2: Right. Well, simply that they are eliminated uh, is one answer that, well, we're committed to our idea of reality, right? Uh, we want to believe that what we think about gender and region and race Uh, corresponds to what's actually out there to empirical reality Um, and I think it's always worthwhile to take a step back from our confidence Um, are we perhaps projecting fantasy are we perhaps eliding realities out there are we perhaps um, deforming the way another person um, might understand what's real and what's not Um, So I don't know that I'm categorically opposed to the idea of authenticity or reality, but I'm also uh, skeptical of them and and would hope, um, especially among academics, um, that we could kind of institutionalize our skepticism rather than simply beginning with an old definition of the South and going out and finding data that conforms to it.
1: So I know you've talked a lot about the moon pie in other spaces as a special type of southern commodity. And yesterday, I did mention to my mother that you and I were going to talk about moon pies, and she piped up and cheer wine, Mm -hmm. which I had forgotten, I guess, goes with the moon pie.
2: Actually, RC Cola is the thing thing that traditionally has gone with it. I'm interested to hear that there's a uh, North Carolina cheer wine variation on that.
1: I am certain my mother does not drink cheer wine. Okay. So I don't know. I'll have to do some re-background to figure yep. out why she was so on point mm-hmm. that the Moon Pie self-evidently goes with cheer wine.
2: But it goes with something. There's some convention there that when you have a Moon Pie, you have to have a drink uh, in hand and a Southern soft drink.
1: So what is so special about Moon Pies?
2: Uh, moon Pies, I think, are one of many different... Um, food products that has been used to uh, kind of understand a Southern culture, an idea of Southern culture. The reason I wrote that essay about God and the moon pie um, is that I found a good quotation from Bill Ferris in which he says that moon pies anchor Southerners in their culture and history. Uh, And I think that kind of claim is made. Pervasively in foodways discourses that this food anchors us in our memory in our history in our culture um, And I guess I find that a fairly odd claim um, What is it about the moon pie and the culture the history the heritage that it supposedly represents? How does that connection work? Um, I Think people do um, understand the moon pie to somehow invoke an idea of southernness or a southern imaginary. Um, but a hundred years ago, no one was talking about moon pies or barbecue or food in similar ways. This is a fairly recent discourse. Food ways is, is a kind of recent uh, way of thinking about the South. Um, and what I've argued in the essay you're referring to is that um, the food way is always a choice. It's a consumer option. We can choose our route to the South, to Southern culture, history, heritage, through the moon pie, or through sweet tea, or through this kind of pie, or that kind of pie. Um, whereas earlier understandings of southernness oftentimes um, turned on being defined in a certain way. The idea that geography is fate, um, that race and gender are fate, that you are born into a position and that the South is a social reality dictating that you must act in a certain way. Uh, So, Southernness is understood historically as a set of determinants, uh, as a set of codes and rules and prohibitions that one must follow. Um, And so, what I'm interested in, where the moon pie is concerned, is how choice how option enters the equation Um, I think the South invoked by the moon pie is a much less coercive South um, and there's something to be said for that Um, if in order to be a white southerner to conform to an idea of being a white southerner a hundred years ago I had to support Um, one-party rule. I had to support white supremacy. I had to support segregation. Otherwise, I would have paid a social cost. Um, Now, I can choose a moon pie or not, uh, a cheer wine or an RC Cola um, without those negative consequences accruing. I think the coercive potential um, and power of the South has has lost force um, in recent decades.
1: Briefly, where is the moon pie from?
2: Moon pies from Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's invented in the 19-teens, and it's kind of an industrial product. Um, I mean, the agrarians, the Nashville agrarians in celebrating uh, Southern culture didn't talk about things like moon pies. And so I was interested to find um, a claim by a leading Southern historian, uh, former head of the National Endowment for the Humanities under Bill Clinton, uh, that this thing, the moon pie, invented you know, well after the Civil War is what anchors Southerners in their history uh, and in their culture. How does, again, that equation work?
1: Is it true? I feel like this is true. They throw them at Mardi Gras.
2: I believe so, yeah. And it's been integrated. And that's another...
1: Which is very far from Chattanooga.
2: Very far from Chattanooga. Um, and a very different... Culture. I mean, with the Spanish and the French um, influences there. Uh, and this is another problem, I think, with uh, conceptions of realness or authenticity. Uh, what's authentic is constantly changing. We, we we tend to erroneously understand things like authenticity and tradition as stretching back into time immemorial. Um, traditions, many of them, are of fairly recent vintage. Um, and so understanding the flexible nature um, of tradition and of authenticity how they're constantly being revised may disrupt common understandings of what those things are but they also correspond to how traditions um, actually evolve and to have I, mean, I I would not say it's impossible that a an industrial food product invented in 1918 could become part of a southern tradition or a southern uh, reality. Uh, I'm just a little wary of, of thinking too... Um, I'm just wary of thinking a little too fixedly about um, those kinds of terms.
1: I also... I think sometimes too, when people talk about authenticity in addition to some claim about themselves mm-hmm. they're making or their view or experience, it also seems to come up a lot with an idea of loss. Right. We seem to recognize authenticity when we mm-hmm. feel that something is changing. Right. And that goes back to your earlier point that Southern Living has to come out to talk to us about authenticity mm-hmm. following the Civil Rights Act. Essentially, right. so it's interesting that with the moon pie, mm-hmm. to me, that my mother said cheer wine, mm-hmm. you say RC Cola Coca Cola is yeah. a huge Southern commodity. I live right. in Atlanta, it dominates everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. Why is it not the Moon Pie and a Coca-Cola, which is also arguably a Southern beverage?
2: Very good question. And I do not know the answer to it. Um, perhaps Coca-Cola is a little too global uh, at this point. Um, it's one of the interesting things about the South, right? Is that, that uh, for all we, imagined the region, erroneously I would say, as a little bit behind the times, as as economically pre-modern. We have offered the world um, the kind of epitome of global capitalism in Walmart, uh, the epitome of the global brand in Coca-Cola. cnn which is not as prominent as it was uh, was certainly one of the first cable news networks that covered the world i mean the kind of time space compression that cnn uh, permitted so that we could know what was happening in iran or in iraq or in um, bolivia at any point in the day Um, fedex fedex uh, a lot of these global kind of brands that we understand to be at the very cutting edge of modernity have emerged from the South. Um, It's kind of ironic.
1: I think it's labor practices.
2: Labor practices, yes. And that's another kind of interesting historical, getting back to labor, uh, that's another interesting historical feature um, is that the mode of flexible labor uh, that seems to be emergent really from post- World War II uh, to the present and and with increasing speed um, is a very old style of Southern labor. I mean, dating back to sharecropping and tenant farming in the late 19th century, where the landowners were not really on the hook. Um, They could always find another tenant, another sharecropper to um, produce the cotton, Um, but there was no long-term economic relationship between the two of them, and and it was understood that this was a very tenuous um, relationship. Um, In some ways, the South's exploitative um, labor practices have positioned it to um, emerge forcefully and to play well in the um, emerging economy.
1: So one last question for our listeners at home. What should they be reading? If they're interested in what you've said today or thinking about these issues more, where would you send them?
2: Well, two of my good friends' books that I think are very interesting in um, thinking about how the South fits within the nation's thinking are Jennifer Ray Greason's Our South um, and Leanne Duck's The Nation's Region. I think they're both excellent analyses of how the nation has imagined and fantasized about the South. Um, I'll also plug John Smith's Finding Purple America. Uh, I think it's an interesting look at Southern fantasies, the way fantasy uh, organizes many ideas of the South. Um, and lastly I'll, I'll plug Undead Souths, um, a book co-edited by Eric Anderson, Taylor Haygood, and uh, Dan Cross Turner, um, that looks at the idea of the South perpetually dying and being reborn. And, and there's a lot of vampire, a lot of ghost stories, a lot of uh, zombie uh, fiction um, set in the South that kind of plays on this idea that the South is always on the danger of expiring but always comes back to life. Um, and I think that's a, a very interesting metaphor to uh, use, and there's a, a variety of essays in that book that explore that. Uh, kind of general concern very productively and interestingly
1: great well thank you so much for being here on about south today
2: well thank you for having me all right we're good. good all right perfect
0: Thank you so much for listening this week and big thanks to Scott Romine for joining us. About South is brought to you each week from the historic West end of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines is co-producer. Music is by Brian Horton. You can buy his music at brianhorton.com. Please subscribe to About South on your preferred podcast platform. And you can also visit and contact us at aboutsouthpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we'd like to see you there as well. Also, The naming contest for the Blue Crayfish closes on August 31st. That is right around the corner. And we really want to know what you think we should name that official About South mascot when he or she arrives. We are taking a mid-season break. We will be back in two weeks with a football spectacular episode. So, in the next two weeks, some big things happen. One, college football season starts. And two... Kelly and I try to get our lives together so we can keep bringing you the second part of the first season of About South. Until then, take care and more Eagle.